This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Hauntlings. Um, What'd you just say? Hauntlings. <laughs> I thought you said hey, hotlings. Hotlings? Hey, our little hotlings. No, they're not hotlings. Who's a flat top and who's a drumstick? No. <laughs> I called them hauntlings. That's weird. Okay. Um, they could be hotlings. Hauntlings. Um, this show that you're about mm-hmm. to hear is mostly from... Podax. Uh, it was recorded live on March 31st, 2019, uh-huh. except they fucking dissed me. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we lost, apparently, the first, I don't know, 20, like 20 minutes, minutes of Reppy's story. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're going to punch in here. Punch in. We're going to have Reppy tell us the first part yeah. of her story. And then once we get to the part that was recorded, we're going to transition yeah. into the live recording. So it sounds a little different. Also, it's going to sound a lot different. We're, we missed all the like cheering in the intro. So there were 200 people. There, there. were thousands <laughs> of people crying yes. to see us. To they see us. Crying. And cheering. Like, it was like it was when like the, the Beatles. Beatles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, okay, um, our topic for this show was Nashville murders. Yeah, Nashville-ish. Nashville-ish. <laughs> Nashville-ish murders. Yes. You know. Um, so, Reppy, you want to kick us off? and, and Sure, read? I have no choice. You don't. <laughs> okay, so Lauren Agee was a beautiful and very outgoing 21-year-old girl. She was very social and loved being involved in everything. She always wanted to be with her friends, and she also had a love for CSI work and thought about maybe joining the FBI one day. On the weekend of July 24th to July 26th of 2015, she was attending Wakefest on Center Hill Lake in Middle Tennessee. Fucking Wakefest. Why? <laughs> it's such a stupid thing. Oh, it's just <laughs> You so want dumb. to explain what it is? Yes. So Wakefest is a three-day wakeboard competition and festival about two hours outside of Nashville. And also... A total nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for Reppy. <laughs> I mean, not only are you surrounded by a huge lake, who mm-hmm. knows what's in that lake? Leeches. You just have to watch dudes who are kind of drunk try to do tricks on a wakeboard. Yeah, it really, when we were doing this live, I did uh-huh. ask you, was there like music there and stuff? But uh, no. No. It's just no like they weren't sitting there jamming out to smash mouth or anything yeah you sleep and drink and then in the morning you wake up really early and drive your fucking boat eight miles inland Mm. and watch people wakeboard and then you drink some more at night yeah that sounds boring as fuck yep so during this weekend people drink they watch the competition so lauren meets up with her friends friday the 24th she's with hannah palmer who's her best friend they've Mm -hmm. known each other since they were young and they meet up with a man named aaron lily and another man named chris stout they camp on top of one of the cliffs and there is a pretty eerie video of lauren and hannah with the boys on a canoe rowing to the cliff and lauren sees the cliff for the first time and hannah says we're going to a death trap Mm, foreshadowing yeah (laughs) so the whole weekend is 
designed to get drunk probably on fucking this is where at the at one point I was like <laughs> I was like they probably get drunk on really bad beer probably and I said like PBR yeah and then I said Rolling Rock and some girl in the audience was like that's good bad beer <laughs> Rolling Rock tastes like aluminum <laughs> but because you've only had it in aluminum yes because yeah I said that and Austin said I was like not if you have it in a bottle and I was like just you Rolling were like, Rock it comes, comes in a, in a bottle, bottle? <laughs> I didn't think they were that classy yeah. I thought you could only buy it. It's like $5 for a six-pack of Roller Rock. Yeah. <laughs> so they all make it to Saturday perfectly fine. They Good party. Yeah. <laughs> They've really done it. They party on Friday. <laughs> done it. <laughs> <laughs> they party on Friday. They sleep. They go back to Wakefest. And then they come back and they do everything over again. That's the plan. Saturday night, they go to a local bar and grill called Fish Lips for dinner. <laughs> And oh, fish lips. Just like a vagina. Which is, often. yes, it is a euphemism. Which it never even occurred vagi- to me. I know. Until we were up on stage live, she was just like, yeah, it's fish lips. And I was like, that, yeah, that means, means vagina. Yeah, it didn't It didn't occur to me. <laughs> I think because I was looking at pictures of the bar and it's like cute and blue. And it looks like, it looks like during the day it's someone, it's some place parents would take their kids because it's like a That's floating disgusting. restaurant yeah and then at night it's like a a bar yeah, yeah grimy bar Ew. type situation How, it's like it's a real hannah montana yeah, because during the, during the day it looks like almost like a tga uh, tgif or like you know it's got like a bunch of boating pictures on yeah. it and it's like turquoise blue mm-hmm. and it's floating out on a lake disgusting <laughs> disgusting lauren and the group return to the cliff drink and hang out and then get some sleep so she had been drinking that night but her friend said she was definitely not drunk Mm -hmm. she had maybe two or three drinks that evening in total and when the group wakes up the next morning lauren's gone the group looked for her thinking maybe she went out to pee but they couldn't find her and thought instead maybe she went on ahead without them to find an ex who had been attending the wake fest as well and she had kind of gotten into an altercation the night before at fish lips he was there and she said she, like, confronted him and his girlfriend was there at one point And they kind of got into a little bit, not like a full-on screaming match, but just like a, you know, a t- X-type yeah. match. Um, like, and fuck you. No, fuck you. Just, yeah. Yeah. And then during this, this is weird, too, because this is when, at one point, she fights with him and then she can't find her friends again. Mm. They're just kind of around the corner. Yeah. And she says, oh, now I'm going to have to sleep on the houseboat because there's a houseboat there, which oh. comes up later on. And then they they kind of, I don't know, come around the corner. And they're like, ha, 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 it's us. We didn't forget you. That's so <laughs> Yeah. These so, people seem like the worst. They're the worst. So there is one problem with that idea, though. Her phone, shoes, clothing, purse, keys were all still there. Who goes into the woods without no their one. shoes on? Even to pee. Yeah. She would have, and, and to leave, she would have had to walk down a mountain to get on a boat and row into Wakefest with none of that. Mm-hmm. And also, it's not like the boat, like she, I mean, I guess she could have been meeting her ex, but it's not like she would have been like, oh, we're sleeping in and missing all the stuff. I gotta go. I gotta <laughs> all go that watch wonderful some Wakefest. Stuff. Yeah. So they leave and go and have a great time. And there's even one, <laughs> there's a photo one of the boys put on social media. And it's captioned, best day ever, which is sad for so many reasons. One, because that girl's missing, but also your best day ever is at Wakefest. Yeah. There's, so, the ugh. bar's really low for the rest it of his life, It doesn't make you want to die. A little bit. A little bit inside. Yep. <laughs> so they never tell her mother, police, or anyone else that Lauren's gone. Mm. 
At 4.30 that afternoon, two fishermen find Lauren's body in a cove. It was found in the water not far from where she had been camping. There was blunt force trauma to the head, the top of the head, the right side, as well as the back. And she had also had fractured ribs. Blunt force trauma and drowning were listed as the cause of death. Mm. But it was said to look that it seemed like an accident. The medical reporter said it was consistent with an accident, and he didn't have any proof that there was any foul play. The idea was that while they were sleeping, she fell from the cliff, maybe trying to pee or just walking around. So she falls from the cliff somehow and ends up in the water. Mm. Many people, including famous investigator Sheila Wozniak, do not believe this is true. So she was in criminal she's mentioned in criminal and she's the one who solved her friend's murder yes Mm -hmm. from texas yes so they have lots of proof starting with lawrence fucked up friends i don't worry fucked up but they deserve that um also can i mention that podax did ask us to keep this pg-13 and i have a (laughs) and i have a um a preset list of curse alternatives here that you may be hearing okay so let's see (laughs) Her fudged friends. <laughs> uh, when Lauren's mother was finally notified, she was told there was an accident. She was taken to the hospital with no details and forced to wait 20 minutes before Jeremy Taylor, the deputy sheriff, took her into an office and told her Lauren died because she was cliff jumping during the day and obtained injuries that killed her in her sleep. What? what? Yeah. Uh, she would be in... This fudging guy, am I right? (laughs) Yes, this fluffing dude. (laughs) So, um, so it didn't seem, cliff jumping didn't really seem like something Lauren would do. So her mother was like, okay, well, I'm going to ask her friends for photos or any, anything from that day. And she couldn't find anything, nor could she find any kids who were like, yeah, people were cliff jumping that day, which... You know, people are cliff jumping. There's probably pictures, I imagine. Oh, yeah. You don't do it. You do it to get the pictures. Right? Yeah. I don't know why else you would. (laughs) It seems dangerous. Okay. So, also, none of the kids that Lauren was with that day, like her best friend and those two boys, came to the funeral. And when they were questioned by Lauren's mother, they said that she had to move on with her life. Whoa. (laughs) These... Kids have some mouths on them. <laughs> yeah. Oh, they need to be. They would never make a hypotic. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. <laughs> so, so this is where a man named Ryan Melanson comes in. He was an off-duty police officer at Wakefest and was at the scene immediately because he was actually a um, a security guard at Fishlips in his off time, which I think you're not supposed to do as a cop. But oh no, you can. Really? Yeah, that's how they make. Yeah, that's how they uh, make some extra money on the side because they don't really get paid enough. But then, like, aren't you working a ton of hours? Yeah, it yeah. sucks. <laughs> this is dangerous. Okay, it does. So, uh, we should give the people with guns no sleep, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so, he was there when the fishermen, the fishermen came to fish lips because they found them, didn't have anything on them to call the police. Um, so, they float up. And says there's a small body in the water. And they actually tell him that it's a child. Oh. And so he's like, oh, show me. So <laughs> I want to see. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> um, so he says she's floating. she was floating face down in the water. And that they didn't disturb the body at all. And suddenly the boys came up in a canoe. Aaron oh. and Chris. They come up in their canoe. 
and they ask if it's their missing friend, <gasps> which is a red flag because they didn't like they didn't consider her missing. They yeah. thought she, they went on without her. Um, they automatically assume the dead body is hers even after they're like, we don't know who it is yet. We have no idea. And Ryan said they seemed scared and robotic, but not concerned or sad. To him, it seemed like they were surprised a body was even found. Um, and Aaron at one point even fell asleep on the boat a few times and he wouldn't let Chris speak at all. Like at one point, Ryan was like, oh, so what school do you go to? Blah, blah, blah. And Aaron would like, like nudge him every time so, he tried yeah. to speak. Were they intoxicated? At this point, it was like five o'clock. So, I mean, probably. So, yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, although originally there was crime scene tape up at the cliff, mm-hmm. uh, it was taken down quickly. And soon after, the boys and Hannah were free to go up to the cliff- cliffs by themselves and gather their things. And the police went up after to grab Lauren's things. Oh. And when they returned her items to her mother... Things like her sleeping bag and personal items were missing. So they swiped them, mm-hmm. probably. Yeah. Yeah, swipe or no mm-hmm. swiping. <laughs> they should have said that. <laughs> so odd details came up, uh, and Sheila, Ryan, and Lauren's mother start digging around. So the first bad sign of something bizarre taking place was a text. On Saturday night before her death, she texted her friend Jade at 11 o'clock at night and said, um, she begged her to pick her up. Mm-hmm. Jade said Lauren um, was having a bad time and it was no longer fun and she wanted to leave. When Jade tried to call and text back to figure out where she was and if she could even get out there, like in time, because this was hours away from her and on a, you know, windy road, um, she couldn't get through and they think that's because of the bad service up there. So in an interview, as the body is being found, Hannah starts crying, saying she knows it's Lauren, even though it hasn't been ID'd yet as Lauren. But she she says she, uh, she knows it's Lauren and that her and Lauren have been friends since she was 10, and she wouldn't ever just leave her keys and shoes. But still, when they woke up, she didn't call the police. No. So when you canoe to the cliff, you have to go to, like, the backside. So as you approach, you have to go around it. Okay. That's where, like, the docks are to park mm-hmm. your boat. Um, and only then can you see the two... Co- there's two coves. There's one right in front of you. And then around to the side, there's another cove. Okay. And in that further cove is where Lauren's body was found. So, but at the time of her falling, because of the time of her death, they figured out that if she had fallen when they said she must have because of time of death, they would have run into her body because it would have been still right there floating in the water. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have been able to go into the cove yet. Um, Also, after being tested multiple times, I can't speak, multiple times with similar size and weight dummy, even someone, if someone actually fell off that cliff, they'd Mm -hmm. get stuck halfway down before they could even come and touch the water so there's probably a rock ledge or something it Mm -hmm. it goes flat and then it deepens again and goes into the water yeah um so what could have happened murder so (laughs) maybe (laughs) so first there's aaron lily he's been arrested multiple times and even tried to flee once which always works well (laughs) um however so his ex-girlfriend also came up and was in it was proven that she well, it wasn't proven, I guess. I don't know. He has a restraining order against her. So I guess it was proven that he was beating her. 
he sent oh, you her. Mean she has a restraining order against. She has a restraining order against. Okay, him. sorry. No, because that's okay. he was just... beating her, and he sent her to the hospital. Um, his ex says he was aggressive, a liar, um, and she even had photos of the abuse. But he seems like the little leader of his group. Like he controlled kind of Chris and Hannah yeah. at the time. Days after, there's a recording of Aaron talking about his crazy ex-girlfriend. And Cassie's the ex-girlfriend he's talking about. She's okay. the one who has the restraining order. Um, and Cassie later gives an interview saying, whether it was a drunken accident that somebody, you know, hurt her, but I don't know. I still don't think she fell off that cliff. Oh. So, so she doesn't think it's... Yeah. So, she's, mm-hmm. so this Aaron dude, he's just a piece of snizzle. He's just a snizzle. Yeah. <laughs> and not the good kind. No. <laughs> so... Um, Christelle also has a bad past. Christelle? Uh, Stout. Chris? Christel- oh, Chris Stout. Stout. Okay, I was like, his name is Crystal. <laughs> How fancy he is. Swarovski. So, I have a discussion between a lawyer and Chris. Oh, no. This is like a little bit after Lauren's death and they're discussing what happened after after everyone brings into question Lauren's death. They like re-interview everyone um, and they're discussing what happened directly after leaving the camp once they spoke to police. And the lawyer says, do you recall this number? Then he gives the number. Chris Stout says, no, I don't. I don't recall it personally. And the lawyer says, what if I told you you called that number six times as soon as you got back into your car? Um, that refresh your recollection as to who you spoke to? And Chris Stout says, no, I don't recognize the number. I always just put people's numbers in my phone. Um, and the lawyer's like, okay, but do you remember who this is now that I told you you called him six times? And he says, no. And then he says, unless it was, and then he stops. And then he says, I don't know. And the lawyer's like, unless what? Mm-hmm. And he says, I don't know. Maybe it was a girl I was talking to or something. I don't recall. How do you not recall? Your friend just died. Yeah. I, and you called the number six times six and you time. don't know what that listen, number is. I never call anyone six times. Never. My Listen, I could have never, like, not heard from my mother for, like, a month. And I will not call her six yeah. times. Well, <laughs> also, like, once someone doesn't pick up your phone call... You don't want to call again. I mean, Not I called usually. you this morning and you didn't pick up my phone call. And I was like, well, I guess she's dead. To she's me now. dead now. Yeah. That's I'm what we go to immediately. Yeah. yeah. Um, so meanwhile, during all this, the county sheriff, Patrick Ray, concluded in July of 2018 um, that former detective Taylor could have gathered more information, but he refused um, to say that he should have like done more so he was like yeah he could have gathered more information but he did his best he's low-key just saying like maybe he's bad at his job yeah i'm not gonna say it though yeah all of the interviews like when they brought them in finally to question him the interviews between him the police officer and all of those people all the he never took any photos he never recorded any interviews he never took down numbers he never did any of that there's no record great yeah love it so, um, Lauren's mother, Sherry Smith, begged County Sheriff Patrick Ray to reopen the investigation. Um, 
but he refused. So Smith decided to take legal action against the four young people who were believed to be at the campsite at the time of her daughter's death. Civil case? Yep. Okay. So, however, her entire investigation was thrown out by a judge, um, Judge Jonathan Young. He called it ridiculous. He said, the court is extremely disappointed with the quality of the testimony. Um, and he said the case was pulled out of thin air. Huh. He said there was no reason for it. What a dick. <laughs> Sorry. Do you have a word for dick? Um, you could call him a hemorrhoid or a ninny hammer. <laughs> what a ninny hammer. <laughs> um, so then... Um, the Lauren Agee case went to appeals. Mm. Um, and the Court of Appeals in Nashville tore apart Judge Young's ruling. They said it was abuse of discretion, applying incorrect legal standard, reaching a logical or unreasonable decision, and clearly erroneous assessment of the evidence. So they were like, uh, fudge you. Yeah. <laughs> so the court ruled that the Smiths have a clear legal right to sue for wrongful death. And in February of 2019... Sherry Smith was finally able to sue for wrongful death of her daughter. As part of her lawsuit, Smith lawyers interviewed Detective Taylor in June of 2018, forcing him to detail his in investigation into Agee's death, revealing the gaping holes in his case. During the videotaped session, the now former detective admitted that he did not listen to the 911 calls reporting the discovery of the body, nor did he interview the people who made those calls. He also didn't know when she was last seen alive. He didn't attempt to speak to the residents of... So when, when she was fighting with that ex, ex of hers over by fish lips, there was a houseboat. Chris Young brings up the houseboat. Okay. And so does um, Hannah Palmer, her best friend. And they say that at one point, they're there and they're like around the corner and mm -hmm. she's fighting with her ex and the ex kind of wanders off and they hear her being like, oh, I guess they left. I guess I'll have to sleep on the houseboat. Oh. So it seems like she knows those people. Uh-huh. He never finds out who those people are. Okay. And all of them are like, yeah, she was going to sleep on the houseboat, but so then that, she didn't because they just, didn't actually leave. We forget about the houseboat. Right. Doesn't matter. Doesn't so he exist. never finds the residents of the houseboats that okay. were docked, not far from the uh, spot where her body was also found. Yeah. So um, he basically is doing less than a true crime podcast would do <laughs> yeah. to investigate. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when asked if he looked for blood evidence on the rocks at the campsite, he replied with a bowed head and said, no, not specifically. <laughs> Taylor admitted that he did not factor in the direction of the currents during his investigation and did not think to bring a diver in to look for evidence in the lake. Awesome. I didn't. I just didn't, is what he said. <laughs> what do you ask? Well, at that point, he's like, great. I'm just bad yeah. at everything. I get it. I shouldn't be a detective. I'm not anymore. <laughs> So, I fixed the problem. <laughs> yeah. So he also admitted that he had never worked a homicide case before, and he had no training in it. He said that he, he made... He usually just investigates um, jaywalking. Yeah. So, you know, it's, so, just, it's a big leap. He said he made no attempt to collect potential DNA evidence from under a geese fingernails and did not request a rape kit because the victim was on her period. Wait, what? <laughs> so apparently, you can't get raped. This is just like my mother. Okay. <laughs> Mom? <laughs> she 
she won't listen to this. She's a terrible mom. Okay. She doesn't believe in podcasts. She doesn't. She That's doesn't believe in my podcast. Yeah. So when I was in eighth grade, I went to, what's that concert in New Jersey? The Bamboozle? No, the other one. No. No, that's that's in Nashville, right? Yeah. Um what's Warp Tour. Did someone say Warp Tour? Warp Tour. Warp Tour. So I went to Warp Tour and she told me that I should wear two tank tops and capris in case someone wanted to rape me or they had a knife. What? What? <laughs> like the the pants were gonna protect me from the knife. And two tank tops? Yeah, because if they took off one, they'd be like, ugh. Too much work. Oh, my Not God. another one. Yeah. This, I'm done with this. I can't rape this little no. girl. <laughs> this is crazy. So apparently she was on her period so she could get raped. Okay. So a shark definitely did it then. Oh, definitely. Yeah. This is, those freaking lake sharks, I told you. Yeah. So we still don't know how Lauren's body ended up in the water. We don't know if she was raped or assaulted. We don't know who the man was in the houseboat or what really happened on that cliff, but the current was running against her body. So if she fell in the water dead, she wouldn't have made it into that cove. Yeah. So she was placed there. Yeah. But Sherry remains hopeful through it all saying, I have faith that we are going to find out what happened to my baby. Oh, the end. Great. Doesn't what a that nice make ending. Die? Should we leave? Yeah. <laughs> we should burn this one too. Yeah. Um, wow. I had like briefly heard about that. Yeah. Basically, just, I just heard the gist, you know, like there was a photo with a hammock, mm-hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There that was a hammock. That's another weird thing. Her and this Chris guy. Who Never she trust didn't, a Chris. Okay. She didn't really know him that well, but. He was interviewed at one point and he said they slept together, which is whatever. Get yours, girl. But <laughs> then at one point he was like, no, I never touched her. And then they also slept in a hammock together. Okay. Sounds uncomfortable, but You're okay. going to sleep in a hammock? Get a tent. <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you going to something called Wake Fest? <laughs> we're, we're bringing it all back to you the You can't wine. get over it. What is... This we're, <laughs> We're near Nashville. There's so much to do here. And you're still going to go out to a lake. They're going to the lake. Go see. Disney's like six hours away. <laughs> they love leeches. <laughs> Lovely. They love dirty, gross water. Yes. Well, hey, Dollywood could have been their next stop. We don't know. They should have gone to Dollywood. You should, you should always choose to go to Dollywood. Would have been better. No. That, nothing <laughs> bad ever happens at Dollywood. Okay. <gasps> well, I am going to. Well. Gonna, well I'm going to tell you about Nashville's very own serial killer, Paul Dennis Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, ooh, so some people recognize. Um, he's also oh, known. Oh, it was her son. <laughs> no. I don't know who this person is. but <laughs> um, So he's also known as the fast food killer. Oh. So he was born, Paul Dennis Reed Jr., on November 2nd, 1957 in Texas. Oh, so not her son. No. No. (laughs) His parents, Paul Reed Sr. and Joni Reed, had several other children. And when they divorced, Reed and one of his sisters went to live with their paternal grandmother and their father. So their father lives with his mother, and now his two kids live with him and his mother. There's still another kid with the mother. With their mother. No. Let's split them up. (laughs) Yes, let's split them up. (laughs) She just didn't want those two. Reed was born with a deformity of his ear, and testing later on in life would show that he had lesions on the left temporal lobe of his brain. So he's a little messed up. Just Just like skin deep or like... No, like he was deaf in it. But like... Yeah. Like... Like... (laughs) 
Oh, Deb. I, I'm safe to say 100%. Like, did it go brain deep, I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, yeah, like, he had lesions on his brain. Like, like, effective lesions or like he was just dead? Like, is that the reason he killed someone? Possibly. <laughs> That's the short answer. Um, so, doctors believe that this deformity, coupled with multiple instances of head trauma, led to an inability to communicate and a tenuous grip on reality, which is always a really good attribute to yeah, have. I have that. His ear deformity also rendered the effect of ear death, as I said. <laughs> Don't get mad at me. <laughs> so, now let's talk about some of his head injuries. At the age of five, Reed was struck in the side of the head with a brick. Then, when he was... <laughs> How? For what reason? No one knows how. It just, someone flung a brick and it hit this five-year-old in the head. We're just going to go on. He really annoying. <laughs> he probably was. <laughs> then when he was 14, he suffered a skull fracture after being in a mini bike accident. Then Reed was hit by a car while riding his bike and he sustained a head injury when his skull hit the windshield. Oh, this poor kid. Yeah, no, he had never had a chance. I mean, let's be honest. In his early adulthood, he injured his head again when he slipped and fell at work. Early on in his childhood, he proved to be a difficult kid, to say the least. Uh, his elderly grandmother found it impossible to control him, and his behavior began to escalate as he grew older. Now, for this next part, I'd like you to imagine that he's your child, okay? Okay. By the age of eight, Reed had a track record of animal abuse, bullying, stealing, and destruction of property. When he was only five years old, he attempted to murder his grandmother by putting tacks in her food and setting her bed on fire with her in it. Now, this is my kid? Yeah. Which grandma? <laughs> no, you're the... <laughs> you're the grandma. <laughs> no, I'm not... How am I the grandma? You're He's the one my taking kid. care of this kid. Yeah. Oh, you're you're oh, his main okay, caregiver. Okay. Over the next four years, he attempted to kill her multiple times. And finally, after consulting with her priest, Reed's grandmother decided that she had to send him to a boy's home. And you know your kid's a bad kid when the priest is telling you to send him away. Well, to a boy's home, though. Yeah, but away mm, from that priest. Sounds a little molesty. Only a little bit. But um, Reed's mother, Joni, after being informed about this decision, took him in. She was like, he's not going to a boy's school. He can come back the and live with me. The one who only took the one? Yes, the one who only had the Fine, one Fine, I'll take him back. Fine. Just Such a drama queen, Grandma. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, he was a constant nuisance in his neighborhood and was known to steal from mailboxes and clotheslines, basically underwear, <laughs> um, which seems fun. That's a little I like, I like the idea of you know? like Grinch style fucking up mail. Sorry, fudging up mail. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he like, was. He just, <laughs> although, you know, I'd be pissed if my Amazon package was gone from my ba- mailbox. So, mm-hmm. but no Depends one got anything is. good back then. So it's yeah, not a big they're deal. all just handwritten letters from loved ones. Yeah, no one cares about those. Um, at age eight, he finally began school after his mother <laughs> learned that his father failed to enroll him in the years that he lived with his father. Well, do you really need school until you're like 14? Not with those head injuries. No. <laughs> While living with his mother and some of his siblings, his behavior only worsened. He began using drugs and attempted to sexually assault both his mother and his sister. During his teen years, he was arrested for robbery, assault, and car theft. 
By all accounts, Reed was a violent person and a habitual liar. He dropped out of school and began committing crimes with his friends when he was 16. And at this time, he was kicked out of his mother's house. Ten years of school total. No, eight years. (laughs) Eight years of school. Good total. That's a good round number. Right? Um, When he was 21 years old, Reed began exhibiting signs of psychosis. He had a sizable rap sheet and had been arrested for auto theft, assault, and just straight-up theft. In 1982, at the age of 26, Reed was convicted for robbing several restaurants in Houston. He was found not competent to stand trial and was hospitalized before being released. Then, in 1983, he was found guilty of aggravated robbery. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. While in jail, he advised fellow prisoners, quote, cut your hair and dress nice so people won't suspect you. Next time, I won't leave witnesses. Great advice. Good. Let him out. (laughs) Um, After serving just seven years of his 20-year sentence, Reed uh, claimed to be the victim of mental abuse inflicted on him by the government. Mm-hmm. Doctors considered him to be dangerous and a potential menace to society. But he served his time. Yeah, all yeah, of it. Him go. Despite this, Reed was paroled in 1990. When he was released, he traveled around various cities in Texas and Oklahoma. He dated several women and stayed with some family members, but always left town when someone began to suspect that he was molesting the children in his life. Was so this is molested? a weird pattern. Probably. <laughs> That's the short answer. He eventually decided that he wanted to be a famous country singer. So, like Just many... Just like me. Let me sing you all the song. <laughs> like, this take come off? <laughs> like many before him, he moves to Nashville, Tennessee. Reed learned how to play the guitar and had plastic surgery to pin his ears back and straighten his teeth, as well as to correct his disfigured ear. He used uh, money from, uh, like, workers' comp from his slip mm-hmm. and fall to do this. When he moved to Nashville, he went by the name Justin Parks and recorded a few demos under this alias. Reed described his music as a cross between Hank Williams Sr. and Garth Brooks. And it was it, not. So it's really hard to find, but I managed to find six seconds of his music. You guys want to hear it? You guys you're, are really in for a treat. Yeah, <laughs> you're going to hear it's from a, t- a television show episode that aired. It's the only place I've ever been able to find it. So you're going to hear the narrator in the end, but this is it. I'm going to turn it up a little. Is that okay? Because um, it's a little faint, but just this is Paul Dennis Reed as Justin Parks. But reality quickly sets in. <laughs> That's it. That's I all I could find. Yeah. He, listen, he's the next Garth Brooks guy. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> so... To support himself, Reed began working at a Shoney's restaurant in Donaldson until his big break came. What is that restaurant? I see it everywhere. It's a Nashville, like, born in Nashville chain. Is it good? Has anyone been there? No. (laughs) We just have a lot of shaking heads in the audience. We're not going to go there. (laughs) Um, So fame was not in the cards for Reed, as you could all hear. (laughs) And he soon found himself resorting to his old pleasures, mainly robbery. Mm, And molesting children? That too. No, I don't know if he did that here. (laughs) On the morning of February 16th, 1997, Reed approached a Captain D's fast food restaurant on Lebanon Road in Donaldson, Tennessee. Captain D's, also a Nashville native food chain. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know them either. 
Okay. (laughs) The restaurant had not opened yet, and manager Steve Hampton had just gotten off a phone call with the restaurant's regional manager and was waiting to receive a follow-up call. 16-year-old part-time employee Sarah Jackson was performing routine opening procedure. Reed communicated with the employees through the locked door and eventually talked his way in by claiming that he was interested in applying for a job. Once inside, Reed forced Jackson and Hampton into the walk-in freezer. He then took out a gun and shot both Jackson and Hampton execution-style in the heads. Did they die? Yes. (laughs) Jackson was just one month away from her 17th birthday and was described by friends and family as vivacious and friendly. She had persuaded her mother to let her miss church that morning so that she could pick up an extra shift to earn money towards buying a car. Hampton left behind three children and a heartbroken wife. His friends remember him as a loyal and loving man. Once he murdered Jackson and Hampton, Reed emptied the cash registers and used the money to buy himself a car. Ironic, since that's what uh, Jackson was saving up for. In total... Uh, irony. Ha ha ha. In total, he stole around $7,000 in cash and change. When Hampton didn't answer the follow-up call from the manager, um, the manager drove to the restaurant and met the assistant manager who was supposed to begin his shift. They found Hampton's family van in the parking lot and discovered that the door to the restaurant was locked with no sign of life. The regional manager called 911, and at 10.30, police arrived on the scene. They cautiously investigated the restaurant and found Jackson and Hampton lying face down on the floor of the walk-in freezer. The only piece of forensic evidence that was recovered at the scene was a 32 caliber bullet. That's smart that he immediately was like, I'm going to call the police. Yeah. And not like they, try to break they, in myself. They made some good calls. They were mm-hmm. like, we just got to get him here. The murder of Jackson and Hampton upset the community and terrified those working in the service industry. In the wake of the crimes, local fast food restaurants changed their operations and employed safety measures to prevent their staff from being targeted next. Meanwhile, police struggled to identify the killer. The day after the Captain D's murders, an elderly man who was scavenging for cans came across a movie, a movie rental card on Ellington Parkway. He also discovered two health benefits cards for children with the surname Hampton. Metro police were able to link the cards to Steve Hampton and eventually lifted a full fingerprint from the video rental card. That fingerprint did not belong to Steve Hampton. However, the print didn't match any records in nearby cities. On February 27th, Reed was fired from, actually not on February 27th, sorry. In January, Reed was fired from his job at Shoney's by manager Mitch Roberts. Reed had hurled a heavy plate at a coworker. Well, that'll do it. He missed the small woman and luckily did not injure her. Reed was livid when Roberts fired him. He ranted and raved at Roberts about how he had done nothing wrong and he shouldn't be fired. He yelled about how he was a pre-law student, even though he was actually enrolled in remedial classes at a community college. He was pre-pre-law. Pre-pre-law. Five weeks later, on March 23rd, 1997, Reed robbed a McDonald's in Hermitage, just three and a half miles down the street from the scene of the first murders. That night... Reed hid behind the drive through menu and confronted four employees as they were leaving the store after closing up at 9 p.m. He pulled out a gun and forced them back inside. Again, he lined up the employees and shot them one by one in the head. 
First was 17-year-old Andrew Brown, followed by 27-year-old Ronald Santiago, and then 23-year-old Robert Sewell. All three were killed with a single bullet, but when Reed went to murder the final employee, Jose Antonio Ramirez Gonzalez, his gun jammed. Now, without a weapon, Reed improvised and grabbed a knife from the kitchen. He stabbed Gonzalez 17 times before assuming that he would just bleed out, so he was done. He was like, I've done, I've gotten there. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot of work. While Gonzalez was lying motionless on the floor, Reed took $3,000 from the cash registers before fleeing the scene. Gonzalez dragged himself to a phone and called 911. He was taken to the hospital where he was treated and eventually made a full recovery. Yay! It was only his third day working there. Oof. (laughs) And it was McDonald's, right? Yeah, it was the closing shift at McDonald's. Brown was a bookworm and attended a local magnet high school. Santiago had recently moved to Nashville from Puerto Rico to pursue a better life. And Sewell was a passionate science fiction fan and loved to build models in his spare time. The media began referring to Reed as the fast food killer. And word of a serial killer who was targeting low-wage workers spread all over the greater Nashville area. Police sent undercover officers to work at fast food restaurants in hopes of stopping the killer, which that's good. <laughs> not yeah, for the officers. They must but, have hated it. Oh, their I'm lives. sure they hated it. Because not only are you a cop who's now working at a McDonald's, but you're waiting to get possibly yeah. killed. <laughs> and also, no one knows you're a cop working at McDonald's, so you're just like. They're treated they're like garbage. Like, um, I actually asked for two ketchups and you gave me one i need to speak to your manager okay i could arrest you i'm gonna kill you yeah jose gonzalez was an invaluable resource during the hunt for reed even though he didn't speak english and was extremely weak from his injuries he was able to communicate with police and answer their questions wait what the fuck was he doing at a mcdonald's he didn't speak english how did he do he can make burgers and stuff well i was just asking was he a cook or was he like maybe i don't he was his third day there he doesn't know what he does no one does (laughs) I just feel like it must be very hard for him. At, on it your seems third like he day, has a very difficult life. Your right now. third day at any job, you're pretty much just looking around trying to figure out yeah, what you're supposed to be doing. This poor guy also doesn't speak English. I know. Maybe yeah. someone else spoke his language. Yeah, probably. And he That'd did. Nice. To speak with police, he used an interpreter. That's good. Yeah, Maybe which McDonald's was very has good. An interpreter. That would be great, but I don't think they did. Exactly one month later, on April 23rd, 1997, Reed went to a Baskin-Robbins on Wilma Wilma Rudolph Boulevard in Clarksville. The store was closed, but Reed went to the door and persuaded the employees to let him inside. Really? They know what's happening and they're just like, well. I don't know if they specifically knew. And they probably, yes, they probably were like, we're not fast food, we're ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Nothing bad happens with They're ice like cream. Dairy Queen. They're not fast food. They're fan food. Exactly. <laughs> um, so um, the two employees let him inside, but this crime was different from the last two. While he kidnapped the two employees working that night, 21-year-old Angela Holmes and 16-year-old Michelle Mace. He didn't steal from the registers and didn't use a gun. Instead, he took the women by knife point and drove them to Dunbar Cave State Park, just two and a half miles away from the store. The bodies of the two women were found 200 feet away from each other the next day. Mace had been stabbed numerous times, and Holmes had her throat cut. Holmes had been juggling her job at Baskin-Robbins while maintaining a 4.0 GPA in nursing school and spending time with her newborn baby and husband. Mm. 
Mace was an artistic teenager with a love for photography and a passion for writing. The Baskin-Robbins store had been open for business before the girls' bodies were found. So, cool. People need ice cream. Would you rather be stabbed or your throat cut? Stabbed. I'm ticklish. What? (laughs) What does that have to do with anything? I'm ticklish on my neck. (laughs) So, (laughs) that's my answer. You asked. (laughs) You asked this. (laughs) Forensic examiners were able to determine that the assailant who killed Mace had been right-handed based on the cut Mm -hmm. on her throat. Holmes was found. So what's that like? Ninety percent of the population. <laughs> yeah, most yeah, of us. Okay, cool, cool. Holmes was face down in Swan Lake, which is a great name for a a lake. Not a great a scene movie. though. Yes, both were still in their work uniforms. Police believe that Reed had walked the girls into a cave at knife point, and that Holmes had tried to run away. Reed then grabbed her by grabbed Mace by the hair and cut her throat before chasing Holmes and catching up to her in the lake where he cut her throat as well and left her in the water. This double murder marked a change in Reed's methodology. He was now using a knife instead of a gun to kill his victims and he had expanded his hunting ground. He was also becoming more brutal and ruthless. Police believe that Reed was becoming more brash and confident in his crimes, leaving room for error. On June 1st, 1997, Mitch Roberts, the manager of the Shoney's restaurant from which Reed was fired back in January, was having a quiet night at home with his family. Roberts, his wife, and his two children were about to sit down for a Sunday dinner when the doorbell rang. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, spaghetti Roberts answered it and was surprised to find Paul Dennis Reed standing on his doorstep. Roberts recalled the date he had fired Reed, January 19th, because the next day his co-manager, Charlie Thoet, was found dead inside the restaurant. Thoet had been stabbed over 30 times with a knife from the restaurant's kitchen before his murderer wiped out the safe. In fact, the murder was still unsolved and was actively being investigated. Hmm, what a coincidence. Yeah. Funny how life... But those two just like happen yeah. next to each other like that. That's crazy. Reed told Roberts that he had come to see him because he had important information about Thoet's murder. He <laughs> said that a kitchen employee who had been stealing frozen steaks from the restaurant had likely been the one who committed the murder. And he's like, weird because we're not thing. missing any steaks. No. So <laughs> It's like weird because I was the one doing that. <laughs> Reed indicated to Roberts that he had evidence in his car, which was parked down the road. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Okay, it's a car. Drive it to me. We have a driveway, just letting you know. Um, Roberts noticed that the car, a Ford Probe, looked a little too new and nice for a recently fired dishwasher to afford. Rude. He could have been saving for that car for a long (laughs) time. For so long. His old grandfather could have died. Why would you ever buy a car called a Probe? I don't know. What's it look like? I don't know. <laughs> um, Roberts agreed and began to follow Reed to his car. When they got close to it, Reed pulled out a 25 caliber pistol and pointed it at Roberts. He presented a pair of handcuffs and instructed Roberts to put them on himself. Roberts pretended like, to do so. He's like, okay. And he took his chances that Reed couldn't actually see his hands in the darkness. Reed then walked back to his home, and when they entered, Reed noticed that Roberts' daughter was playing with her new camera that she'd been given as a gift. Reed, being a gigantic narcissist, began to act for the camera. 
In this moment, when Reed was distracted and Roberts was only partially handcuffed, Roberts was able to body check Reed and push him out of the front door. (laughs) Um, He slammed the door in his face and then yelled for his wife to grab their gun, despite knowing that they didn't own one. Reed fled the scene in his car, knowing that police would be called. While the police were interviewing the Roberts family, a call came into the home. It was Reed. In his gruff voice on the end of the line, Reed told Roberts, I just wanted to say I'm sorry. But did he say it like Batman? I just wanted to say I'm sorry. No, well, that's no, nothing. that's like Green Goblin. Yeah, that's, a, <laughs> I just wanted to say I'm sorry. Like that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. Um, he tried to play the incident off as a misunderstanding. Uh, Roberts handed the phone to a police officer who spoke to Reed and convinced him to return to the home to apologize to the family. (laughs) Reed was swayed to do so when the officer informed him that an apology was only genuine if it was given in person. Oh, that's true. That's law. That That is is Nashville law. (laughs) Um, Reed arrived back at the house just in time to be swarmed by police officers who were lying in wait. He was barely out of his vehicle when he was apprehended and taken into police custody. He was fingerprinted while sitting in the back of the police cruiser in front of Robert's house. That seems like something maybe you want to do. At a police station? Somewhere else. Whatever works. <laughs> it, was, it was the 90s. Even before Reed arrived at the county jail, a search warrant was written for his home. His mugshot was taken later that night, was printed and put into a photo lineup, which was shown to Jose Gonzalez, who identified Reed as the man who had killed his coworkers and stabbed him. Yay. Well, so, sorry, not about the stabbing, but that he <laughs> identified them. Yay. Yeah. Um, also, if any of you want to look up this guy's mugshot, I will say that he's all neck. Like all, all neck. neck. Like all he works neck. out the neck a lot? He works out that neck. And then he also has a hairstyle that in a book about this was referred to as a Tennessee waterfall. <laughs> which is, is apparently when a mullet has grown out a little bit. Uh-huh. So then that's the Tennessee waterfall. Sounds beautiful. It, he was a gorgeous So man. he was a real looker. He, yes, he was. Um <laughs> Police searched Reed's East Nashville home on Ordway Place near Gartland Avenue, which is three miles from where we sit right (gasps) now. Let's go. Field trip. (laughs) The inside of the house was unnerving to investigators. Reed had no pictures of friends or family members and instead had plastered his home with pictures of himself. He had installed seven mirrors on the walls of his bedroom so that he could view himself from several, several different angles while in bed. Oh, my God. Uh, in his kitchen were several publicity photos of him, which were prepared to be distributed to various managers and agents in the music industry. A detective noted that the photos, quote, managed to make it clear that he'd never actually played the guitar he held and that he knew absolutely <sighs> nothing about music. <sighs> On his couch were 35 photos he had taken of himself posing in different positions. There was a sticky note written by Reed that explained how the pictures were to be used as a visual tour of his life story once he became a star. Ah. There was even a photo of a urinal that Reed had used with a description explaining that it had been the first one he used when he arrived in Nashville. Oh, what a beautiful thing. (laughs) Though these discoveries were disturbing, the most important piece of evidence was found in Reed's hall closet. 
Police recovered a pair of size 10 high top shoes that had blood stains on the soles. These blood stains would prove to be a match for both Michelle Mace and Angela Holmes. With Reed's fingerprints matching Steve Hampton's movie rental card, the possession of the gun used at the McDonald's massacre, the matching blood stains on his shoes, and Gonzalez's identification, Metro police were certain that they had successfully taken the fast food killer off the streets of Nashville. Reed was indicted and charged with seven murders and was in custody for two years before his trial in 1999. In April of that year, he was sentenced to death for each of the seven murders and given a life sentence for the attempted murder of Jose Gonzalez. However, Tennessee had recently switched from using the electric chair in executions to lethal injection. This stalled Reed's execution considerably. Then, Reed received four stays of execution, one coming in just two hours before he was about to be killed. Mm, Lucky. Setting a Tennessee record for the amount of stays, actually. Um, While Reed's life hung in the limbo of the justice system, another man was on death row in Texas for a crime Reed committed. Max Sofar was imprisoned in 1980 for a massacre at Fairlane's Windfern Bowling Center in Houston, and he spent 35 years on death row before dying of liver cancer in 2016. He had claimed that his confession was false and appealed multiple times. Reed escaped lethal injection when he died of a combination of pneumonia and heart failure in 2013. It is strongly believed that in addition to the seven murders in Nashville, the murder of the Shoney's manager, the bowling alley triple homicide, and the attempted murder of Jose Gonzalez, Reed also committed several other robberies and murders all across the South. Do you remember, have you ever read about that case where the woman was shot through the window of the drive-thru no during this time it might have been i don't think so no that's not really his style i think it was like in 2000 something yeah he was already in prison by then but he killed a ton of people well don't work at fast food places don't have a mullet don't work at no don't don't blame the fast food workers (laughs) i blame fast food (laughs) it's destroying all of us from the inside no listen guys to the core if there's preservatives in your food then they're preserving you. <laughs> and That's how it soul. works. <laughs> um, no, but Paul Dennis Reed was a gigantic hand-me-down diva cup of a person. And yes, and that was... Filled one, with blood. <laughs> filled with blood. We all are. We're bags of blood. Um, and actually, this is one of the cases that we can actually say the police did an amazing job. Um, they risked their lives. They put endless hours and effort into finding this man. They worked and, at McDonald's. Yeah, they worked at McDonald's and Captain D's, although he wouldn't hit those twice, he wouldn't think. Um, yeah. But they true. just, they did a fantastic job and they saved so many lives by getting Paul Dennis Reed off the streets. Yeah, well, good story. Yeah. I mean, people died, but... <laughs> I mean, you know, we're just telling them here. We're we not are. creating them. Um, so I guess that's it for us, yeah. guys. Thank you so much yeah, for joining thank you. us. We were um, so afraid no one would come. I was terrified no one would be here. So um, thank you so much. Yeah, we're. I'm Austin Castelli, and I'm Austin Castelli on social media. Uh, I'm Reparata, and I'm everything. <laughs> Sorry, I'm Reparata, and on all social media. 
We are Hell and High Horror on everything except Twitter. On Twitter, we're Hell High Horror because of character limits. Um, yeah, I yeah. guess. And uh, that's it for today, right? Yeah, I guess so. We're doing a, uh, a presentation on Sunday. If y'all are going to be here, we're going to mm-hmm. be talking about women and true crime podcasting. Yeah, so I guess we'll uh, maybe see you then. Yeah, okay. That's okay. it. Happy hauntings, Happy everyone. Hauntings. <laughs> we don't have our outro music. We don't. <laughs> Sing it.